Good morning, everyone. Uh, glad to see so many of you joining us here in person, and if you're joining us online, it's good for you to be with us as well. Um, when we read stories about Jesus, uh, we see that he said and he did some pretty extraordinary things. Um, but oftentimes, he used very ordinary objects and ordinary circumstances to say or do those extraordinary things. So last week, we looked at bread as a very ordinary object. Jesus was always eating bread with his disciples. He was talking about bread. He was sharing bread with others. But he would communicate these powerful truths using this very ordinary object. Um, He does this with other ordinary objects like fishing nets and birds and flowers and water and olive oil and coins and seeds and lampstands and animals. These were common, everyday, ordinary objects that people around him would see all of the time, and he would point to one of them, and he would say, there's something deeper going on here, something you can learn about what it means to be on a journey with me or to follow me. And so during this season of Lent, we are journeying with Jesus, we're learning about him, we're asking questions about what it means to follow him by looking at some of these very ordinary objects that he used. And so Today, uh, we're going to look at an object that was very common in Jesus's culture, and it's an object that's extremely common in our culture. Uh, In fact, it's an object that I'm holding in my hand uh, right here now, but here's the catch. It's an object um, that uh, means something very different in our culture today than it meant back then. So so I'm going to have to replace this object with a very different object so that you can better understand what Jesus is saying to us in light of what he was trying to say back then. Now, that might sound confusing, so just hang in there, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But first, I want to read you some words that he shared from a passage. It's in Luke chapter 9, and here's what's going on at this point. The disciples have been following Jesus for uh, a year, maybe two years, maybe even more, um, and things have been going great. It's been fun and awesome and amazing to follow Jesus. They've seen him do some really cool things and amazing things. In fact, right before this, Peter even comes to the conclusion, Jesus, we think that you're different than all the other rabbis. Uh, We think that you're more than just a rabbi. You're more than just a miracle worker. In fact, we have come to believe and know that you are the Messiah sent from God to, to redeem Israel, to redeem the world, right? And so at this point, the disciples are actually like a lot of us. They're following Jesus. They've put their trust in Jesus and their faith in him, and they've been following him for quite some time, and they believe extraordinary things about him. But Jesus knows that for them and for many of us, it's not always going to be easy to follow Jesus. It's not always going to be rosy. There's not always going to be free bread and miracles and crowds and sunshine and rainbows, right? Sometimes following Jesus is hard. Sometimes it can be very lonely. Sometimes following Jesus requires sacrifice. It means doing things we don't really want to do. It's Jesus pushing us and challenging us and nudging us and inviting us to maybe do things that we're not so excited about. It's saying, Jesus, I don't really feel like forgiving her right now for what she did to me. Jesus, I don't really want to spend my Saturday doing that. 
I don't really want to have that conversation. I don't want to give that thing up. I don't want to let go of my anger right now. I don't want to deal with that issue. I want to follow you, Jesus, but but what you're asking me to do in this situation or what you're asking me to do right now, I just don't really want to do. And it's in those moments of our faith journey where we can get really focused on the very thing that Jesus is asking us to give up or to let go of. We can get focused on the sacrifice that Jesus is asking us to make and what it's going to cost us and what we're going to lose as a result of it. That interestingly, in those moments, oftentimes we choose not to follow Jesus. Or maybe we just rationalize what he's asking or inviting us to do. And we say, I don't know if you're really asking me. I mean, Jesus wouldn't ask me to do that. There must be some better explanation. And so Jesus decided to address this issue with his disciples when things were still going well, when there were still crowds, when there were still great miracles, when following Jesus was easy. It's in this moment that he pulls his disciples aside to let them know it's not always going to be this easy. And when it's not, let me tell you what to do. Look at what he says. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. You might have heard some of these words before. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves. If anyone wants to be a disciple or a student of mine, if anyone wants to keep following me, and remember he's talking to people who have been following him for quite a while, you're going to have to deny yourself. Now the word deny, that doesn't mean you have to become a hermit or some sort of desert monk or you have to live in a cave and, and eat lettuce or something like that. No, this word deny, it was just a very common word, a very practical word. It literally means you're going to have to turn yourself down. You're going to have to say no to yourself. It's kind of like when we have to say no to our new cat whenever she jumps up on the kitchen counter. It's like, no, you can't do that. It's exactly what I'm going to have to say to myself as I'm driving home today. Because every Sunday morning, on my way home, I always drive by the donut house. (laughs) And I have to say, no, Norton, you cannot pull into that parking lot. You cannot go into that store. You cannot order an old-fashioned sour cream donut or a raspberry-filled donut or my favorite, a cherry fritter. No, you cannot do that. I know it's hard, but you're just going to have to keep driving today. And Jesus is basically saying the same thing to us. Look, there's going to be times where I'm going to ask you to do something you're not going to be excited about doing. Or there's going to be times where I'm going to ask you to stop doing something that you don't want to stop doing. And the question is, are you going to say no to yourself? Or are you going to say no to me? Now, here's where it gets interesting. Uh, The verb tense that Jesus uses for this word deny in this sentence that he um, says to the disciples, uh, in the original Greek, it's a verb tense that implies this is a once and for all decision. Uh, This is a once and for all sort of statement that you're making. It's almost as if Jesus is looking back into their past and they're saying, hey, when you first started following me, you made a decision to follow me. Right? That's not very revolutionary, but following me means you're not following yourself anymore. You made some decision in your life that you were going to start following me and I was going to be the leader from now on. You weren't going to be the leader. 
I was going to be in the driver's seat from now on, and you weren't going to be in the driver's seat. I was going to be the person in charge. You decided you weren't going to be in charge of your life anymore. And what that means is sometimes you're going to have to say no to yourself because you've already said yes to me. But then Jesus takes it a step further, and he introduces an object that most of us don't really understand. He says next, uh, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. You see, uh, this is the object I had in my hand that's in my pocket. It's just this little wooden cross. And it's a really common object in our culture. Um, There's a cross on most church buildings when you're driving around town. If you're here in person, you probably drove by three or four churches that had crosses on them. There's actually a big cross on the side of the building outside. Some of us are probably wearing jewelry with crosses on it, maybe a necklace or a a bracelet or or earrings. If, If you're watching at home, there might be a cross on a wall in your house somewhere. Um, maybe even some artwork that has a cross in it. Some of the most famous paintings in history have been paintings of crosses. Anytime you drive by a cemetery, you're probably driving by hundreds of crosses. First aid kits have crosses on them. Most hospitals and the big signs they have out front have crosses on them. The most well-known relief organization in the world has a cross for its name and its logo. Nations have crosses on their flags, right? There are some people um, who are from a certain religious tradition and they actually make a sign of a cross with their hands quite frequently. There's other people who are not religious at all but still wear jewelry or maybe wear clothes or even wear accessories that have crosses on them. See, the cross is, it's ubiquitous. In our culture, it's everywhere we look. It's this common, ordinary, everyday object that we probably all see dozens of times every single day without even realizing it. The cross was also common in Jesus' day, but in a very different way. It wasn't a sign or a symbol of a movement, it had no religious connotation. As most of us probably already know, the cross was a a tool of of torture and punishment and execution. So we have evidence that the Persians were the first ones to use crucifixion, and then the Greeks under Alexander the Great, and then it was the Roman Empire that really made crucifixion a systematic and widespread tool of capital punishment. If someone was found guilty of a a horrible crime, this is how they were often executed. There were other ways they could kill someone, much easier ways. A soldier could use a sword, but, but the Romans wanted to make a public statement. When someone rebelled against the Roman Empire, they wanted to humiliate that person in front of everyone else. They wanted to make them a public example to basically say, this is what happens to people who go against Roman authority. And so they would hang someone on a cross, usually in a busy part of town, maybe a a marketplace or on 
on a public road where there would be lots of people coming and going. They would usually beat the person before they hung them up and the person would die this this horrible, excruciating death with shame and humiliation in front of everyone else so that everyone walking by would know this is what happens when you challenge the Roman Empire and this is how Roman law and order will always be preserved. It was such a horrible death that Roman citizens could not be crucified. If you were a Roman citizen, you couldn't be crucified because it was so horrible. In fact, it's called in many ancient writings a slave's death because it was only for slaves. And then later, that included foreigners. In fact, crucifixion didn't even happen in the city of Rome very often. It mostly happened in the outer provinces where there was a greater chance of revolt or rebellion and where the local leaders tended to be a bit more ruthless. It happened in places like Palestine where crucifixion was quite common. Uh, There's a Jewish historian, his name is Josephus. He actually lived just a few years after Jesus and he describes numerous accounts of crucifixion in Palestine throughout his historical writings. In fact, when Jesus was a baby, just when he was right after he was born, there were some Jews that revolted in a part of Israel in the north called Galilee. It's where his parents were from. And Josephus tells us about this revolt. Upon this, Varus, who was a Roman official, sent part of his army into the country to seek out those who had been the authors of the revolt. And the number of those that were crucified on this account were two thousand. This is the world that Jesus grew up in. This is the culture that he grew up in. A number of years later, when the Jews revolted in the capital city of Jerusalem there, Josephus tells us this, so the Roman soldiers out of the wrath and hatred they bore the Jews, nailed those they caught one after one way and another after another to the crosses by way of jest when their multitude was so great that room was wanting for the crosses and crosses wanting for the bodies. This is not the Bible. This is just a Jewish historian living at the same time telling us that in Jesus' culture, in his world, The cross stood for one thing and one thing only, the inhumane, brutal torture of someone at the hands of the Roman authorities. And yet, on this occasion, we read Jesus saying to his disciples, if you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. And, and I think for us, it's easy to just sort of skim through those words because the cross is an accessory for most of us. It doesn't have the same meaning for us that it had for them. And so I've been thinking over the last couple of weeks, well, is there a symbol? Is there something that might have the same sort of visceral and almost offensive meaning for us that this word cross must have had for them. And I thought of one. I don't know that it's 
perfect, but it probably gets a little bit closer to what Jesus was saying. It would be like him saying this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their noose daily and follow me. You see, when I say the word noose, if you're like me, you probably think of our nation's horrible history of lynching and hanging people. You know that the word noose is extremely offensive today, and rightly so. It brings up horrible images. I still remember seeing images of lynchings, of hangings, a history of mob violence, of deep racism, of humiliation, of shame, of the worst kind of abuse that can be inflicted on another person. Nobody wears a noose around their neck today. Nobody puts it on their jewelry. Nobody uses it for a logo. So so why would Jesus use such a horrible and visceral image with his followers? Well, just to be clear, Jesus is not affirming violence or injustice. He's not telling people who are victims of abuse or violence, well, that's just the way the world is and you just have to accept it and deal with it. In fact, he's not even using this word cross or or noose. He's not using this image in any sort of literal way because he says you have to take up your, your cross or your noose daily. That's not a literal thing that someone could do. So why would Jesus introduce this this horrible and this visceral image if it's not meant to be taken literally. It's almost as if he's saying, look, here's how hard denying yourself is going to be sometimes. It's going to be really hard and really difficult and painful and it's going to feel unfair and it's going to feel unjust And it's going to feel like something inside of you is dying. It's going to feel like you're sacrificing some deep part of yourself. It's going to feel like you're tying a noose around your own neck. And Jesus says, you have to do this every day. It's not just a once and for all decision that you made a number of years ago. It's something you're going to have to deal with every single day. Now, let's remember Jesus doesn't say this to his disciples on day one. Can you imagine that? Hey, Peter, nice to meet you. Why don't you start following me and hang a noose around your neck or take up a cross and start carrying it? No, he doesn't say that. In fact, remember what he does say to Peter? Hey, Peter, it's great to meet you. Why don't you start following me? I'm going to make you the most amazing fisherman anyone has ever seen, right? And so Jesus is super gracious and he's super understanding. He knows that when he first asks his disciples to start following him, they have to take baby steps and he has to show them that, that following him is going, to be, is going to be great and he's going to do some amazing things and, and he has to begin to build up their faith and their trust in him until he finally gets to the point where one day he says, all right, Here's the deal. It's not always going to be this easy. Sometimes it will be. But there's coming days. There's coming moments. There's coming situations where you're going to have to give something up to follow me. 
where you're going to have to deny yourself, where you're going to have to sacrifice something that feels really important to you in order to keep following me. And because this is such a critical moment and because Jesus just introduced this very strong and offensive image, it's going to be like taking up your own cross or or wrapping a noose around your neck. He knows I'm going to have to explain to these guys who are following me why in those moments when it's really hard to follow me, when it's painful, when it feels like you have to give up so much, why that's actually the best decision you could ever make. And so he keeps going and he says this, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Uh, So the word save in this context, it means to preserve, to keep safe, to protect, or to, to hold on tight to. So Jesus is saying, whoever wants to keep for themselves or hold on tight or, or protect for themselves their own life, meaning all the things that make up their life, their weekends, their their money, their, their control, their way of doing things, when you cling desperately to those things, when you cling desperately to that control over your own life, Jesus says you actually end up losing your life as a result. And then he says the flip side is that the person who lets go of their life, who hands over their life, who is, who is open-handed with their, their time and their calendar and their money and their finances and their freedom and their control, the person who's, who's willing to hand the keys to Jesus and say, all right, you drive, you're in charge, you're leading, I'm following, they actually save their life. They protect their life. They end up preserving their life. Now, how does that work? Well, Jesus doesn't really give us the details of of how this works, but just just think about this system for a second. If there's a system, and Jesus says, here's how the system works, the system is this, if you cling to your life and you hold on to it tight, you eventually lose it, but if you're open-handed and you let go of it, you eventually get it back. If that's the way the system works, then here's an important question. Is that a sacrifice? To deny yourself and to follow Jesus, is that really a sacrifice? Because you know what a sacrifice is? A sacrifice is when you give something up and you get nothing in return. A sacrifice is when you give something away and you expect that nothing is going to come back. But Jesus is saying, here's how the system works. The system works if you give up or you forfeit your life, you actually get your life back. You end up saving your life. You end up keeping your life. You end up preserving your life. That's not a sacrifice. You know what we call that? We call that an investment. You see, an investment is whenever you give something up now and you get something back. Oftentimes, it's even better later. A sacrifice is when you get something up now and you get nothing in return, which actually means that the person who clings to their life and eventually loses their life, they're the ones that are making the sacrifice. 
But the person who's open-handed with their life and with those moments where it's difficult to follow Jesus and they actually get their life back, they're making an investment. And just to help us fully understand what Jesus is talking about, he gives us one quick illustration and he drives it home by saying this. You might remember these words too. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self. So Jesus is saying, let's just take an extreme example. Pretend that someone only looks out for themselves. Pretend that, and this isn't even a negative thing, just pretend that there's someone who's focused on their own future, who's focused on what's in their best interest, who's focused on getting as much as they can for themselves as they want to get. And let's assume and pretend that they gain everything as a result. They get everything they've ever wanted. And for them, they gain the entire world. But what if in the process, they actually lose themselves? And it's not like losing your phone or losing your car keys, and Jesus wants to make that clear. So he actually adds a second verb. He says, it's not just losing, it's forfeiting. What if in the process of trying to gain the whole world, you actually forfeit your own life, your own self? Jesus says, well, what good is that? What benefit is that to you? There's an older translation of this verse. What does that profit you? And that's because the word that's used here is often used in financial or accounting terms. What kind of investment, Jesus is saying, would that be? Well, it's a terrible investment. If you want to invest in your future, If you want to invest in your life, if you want to invest in yourself, well, then the smartest thing you can do is hand the keys to Jesus and say to him, you're in charge. You're in the driver's seat. I'm just following. You're the boss here. And the word boss, by the way, in the New Testament, it's usually just translated Lord, And so we say that all the time, Jesus is Lord, but really that word just means you're the boss. You're in charge. I'm not in charge anymore. I'm not going to be the boss of my life. You're going to be the boss. And for you and for me, more often than not, this question of who's in charge, of who's going to be the boss, of who's doing the leading and who's doing the following, it's not wrapped up in that decision we made a long time ago, if you've been a Christian for a long time, it's wrapped up in the everyday, ordinary, common issues that we face. When we're called to give something up, like my pride or my stubbornness, maybe some time, maybe some money, maybe a desire for revenge, for paying someone back for what they did to me. Maybe I'm being called to give up my desire to avoid that conflict rather than address it. Maybe Jesus is just calling me to give up some of my control, some of that thinking that says, I know what you're asking me to do, Jesus, here, but I just don't really want to do it. And I think Jesus would say, I know, I know you don't, I get it. 
Sometimes it's hard. And I know it feels like a sacrifice what I'm asking you to do, but it's not a sacrifice. It's an investment. And so you're just going to have to trust me. And so here's the question I want to close with for all of us this morning, myself included. Is there anywhere in your life right now where it feels like Jesus is asking you to make a sacrifice? Maybe it's something big, a decision that needs to be made. Maybe it's actually something quite small about how to spend your time or your money. Maybe it's a bad habit that you need to address, but it's going to require giving something up. You don't want to. Maybe it's someone you need to talk to or someone you need to apologize to or, or a situation you need to deal with. And you just don't want to. Would you be willing today to trust Jesus with that? Let me pray for us. <clears throat> God, I thank you for the example of Jesus' disciples who, um, who, just like us, had times of great faith and other times where they doubted or where it was hard or they stumbled forward or even stumbled backward. Um, and so, God, I pray for each and every one of us here this morning or those who are listening or watching online. Um, God, help us to identify those areas of our lives where we're holding back. I pray that your spirit would bring to mind those things in our hearts and our minds right now that we need to trust you with. And then I just ask that you would give us the faith and the boldness and the courage to trust you. I pray this in your name. Amen.